In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Advent season. Uh, If you're joining us for the first time, we've had two messages in Advent. This is our third. Advent simply means coming or arrival. And there are two Advents of Jesus. There's the first coming of Jesus where he came as a baby in the manger. And then we are waiting for his second coming or his second arrival. During this season, we're focusing on his first coming. So several weeks ago, we started into this series by looking at a text in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3, we see that God had made Adam and Eve. Satan the serpent came in, deceived them, and caused them to sin against God. And in their sin, they ran from God and hid themselves in the bushes. But we find something about God in chapter 3, verses 8 and following. We see that it's the Lord God who came and pursued Adam and Eve. He came to them and sought them out. And in those verses there, you see a little key word that the author is using to catch your attention. The previous six verses use the name God, God alone. And then when God comes to Adam and Eve, he uses the the name the Lord God. And the reason he does that is because Lord is the covenant-keeping name of God. And so he wants us to be thinking that God is in relationship with his people and he is going to come and pursue them. Not only does he come to them and meet them where they are, but he makes a promise. And that promise in chapter 3, verse 15, is a curse upon the serpent. And the promise says that a great serpent crusher is coming. And so here we are waiting for the arrival of the serpent crusher to come, and we know that that is Jesus himself. That was week one, and that's who God is. God is a pursuing God. Then last week, we asked the question, why does God pursue us? I mean, if you were starting out the human race, and you saw that the very beginning man and woman, the very first mother and father of the whole human race, were tainted by sin, you would be saying, let's remove them and start over with a perfect couple. Just like if you were raising a herd of cows and you were given two cows to start a great herd, if those two original cows were flawed or had problems, you would say, let's remove those two cows and start with two new ones. But God didn't do that with the human race. Why didn't he start over with two perfect humans? Well, we went to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, where Paul said, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Now, why did Jesus come into the world to save sinners? Here's the follow-up phrase. Paul says this, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Okay, why did Jesus Christ come into the world to save sinners? So that he might use sinners as a display of his perfect, enduring patience. 
And then he goes on to say, to him, to the king of the ages, immortal and invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Why did Jesus come into the world to save sinners? He came into the world to use us as a display of how patient and how merciful and how glorious he can be in each one of our lives. So maybe some of you have gone to Art Prize. And occasionally at Art Prize, an artist will use an old piece of scrap junk. And they will take that piece of scrap junk and they will recreate it into something that is put on display and you go, wow, who was the genius behind that, who did that? How creative were they to spend time taking that piece of junk and making it look beautiful? It points back to the artist. And what Paul is saying is, I was the chief. I was the foremost of sinners. I was a persecutor, a blasphemer, all of that. And what God did is he came into my junky life and he was patient with me, perfectly patient with me. And he saved me and look what he's done. He's put me on display. And all of us are the Pauls. All of us needed God's patience. All of us were wrecked. We were sinners. But God comes in and he saves you. So we learned this, that God has pursued you for salvation, ultimately for his glory. Our salvation is ultimately about who God is so that we would stand back and say, wow, this is a glorious God who can reach down into humanity. These sinners that came from this family tree of Adam and Eve, and he can come into their world through Jesus Christ and save them for his honor and glory. Each person who is saved is a reflection, just like a, a bright light that shines about God's glory and his patience. So if you're saved this morning, you're saved because God is glorious. Now we move into really our text for this morning. And we're asking the question, what did Jesus accomplish for us when he came into the world? So we started off with who is God, Genesis 3. He's the God who pursues. Why did he pursue? He pursued us because he's glorious. And now we're asking this third question here in this sermon this morning. What did Jesus accomplish for us when he came into the world? What did he accomplish? Okay, so big idea for the sermon this morning is this. Because we were slaves, Jesus came to make us sons of God. Because we were slaves, Jesus came to make us sons of God. Now, the big idea is going to be the three points of the sermon. Because we were slaves, point one, Jesus came, point two, to make us sons of God. And this is what's going on in Galatians 4. So point number one, because we were slaves. Now, we see here in verses one through three that we're jumping right into the middle of the book. And because this is a topical series leading up to Christmas, we don't have time to really go through the whole book of Galatians and help us see the whole argument. But what Paul is doing here is he is using an illustration to prove his point. And the illustration has two individuals. 
In verse 1, he says, I mean that the heir, and he's just referenced heirs in chapter 3, as long as he is a child is no different from a slave. So here are the two individuals. There's an heir and there is a slave. Who's an heir? An heir is a child who is waiting for an inheritance. Lots of possessions are going to be handed down to him. And on the other hand, there's a slave. The slave is someone who has no inheritance coming. So what is the commonality between the two? Well, the heir in older cultures was given over by the father to somebody who was called a guardian or a manager. Think of somebody like a nanny, or if you think of maybe the older uh, kinds of monarchies where the children were placed under the rule or under the authority of servants. These children had no authority in and of themselves. Whatever the nanny or whatever the servant said, that's what they had to do. The servant kept the schedule. The servant put them to bed. The servant would whisk them away, send them off to different places. And what Paul is saying here is that, hey, there are heirs and there are slaves, and they are both in the same situation. They're both enslaved to an authority that is over them. But now he moves on with the illustration to verse 3. And he says, in the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Okay, so how is he making the illustration apply to us? By this, first, he refers to us as children. And children here is not biological children. He's not talking about the young kids who are up here this morning. He's referring to our past. Before we came to Christ and received our freedom in him, we could be called children. And at that time, we had an authority over us. What was the authority? What were we enslaved to? Verse 3 says that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, it makes us ask the question, what are the elementary principles of the world that were kind of like a slave master to us? Well, he brings it up again in verses 8 and 9. So just look down in chapter 4, 8 and 9. He says this, Formerly when you did not know God, that's your child status, that's when you were children, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? So at this point, I think Paul is talking to both Jews and Gentiles. In the Gentile world, they were pagan worshipers. They weren't even like worshiping true deities. They were just small gods that they were worshiping. And he says, you know, at one point you were enslaved to the elementary principles, the basics of the world. And during that time, those basics of the world were your authority in your life. You listened to that. They whisked you away. You gave yourself over to them. They had power over you. So still, what could these things be? I think the Apostle John helps us when he talks about the elementary basics of the world. 
It's characterized by the world here. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. John says, do not love the world. Okay, well, what are the basics in the world or the things that are in the world? For all that is in the world, here it is, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These are the basics of the world. We have desires of the flesh. We have desires of the eyes. There's pride in life. We want these things. We're given over to these things. And the world offers it up like a platter to us. And our little appetites say, I have to have it. I'm controlled by that. So you know, maybe it's possessions, but maybe it's status. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's your own impulses. But the world offers these things up, and your appetites, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life says, man, that's of the world. I've got to have that. And you might be here saying, well, what in the world's wrong with that? I mean, can't we have a little bit of fun here? What's wrong with that? is that if we are living under the slavery of the world and obeying that authority, what's taking place is that we're sinning against God and breaking his law. We're violating his will. We're committing sin against God. So think of it this way for just a moment. Life under the basics of the world. Take a young man who's approached by a very suave, mature, accomplished-looking individual. And this individual pulls up with his shiny car, gets out. He's got women in the car. And he pulls a wad of money out of his pocket. And that young man says, wow, I'm impressed. If I could have those kinds of possessions, that kind of money, and those women, I would be loving life. Well, it just so happens that the guy who gets out of the car is a drug lord. And the young man says to himself, if that's what it takes, I'm going to give myself over to it because I want those things. And so this young guy starts running drugs. And here he comes back to the drug lord, and the drug lord goes, here's your hundreds again. And he goes out and he does more drugs, running drugs. And he comes back to the drug lord and he's like, give it to me. That's what I want. Here's your hundreds again. And he takes the hundreds. He goes, buys cars, takes a hundred, go gets women, starts making himself look real good. And he's like, I want more of this. The only problem is that there's also a law over here that says you're breaking the law. And now... You're going to face the consequences when you're caught. Eventually, the chickens come home to roost, right? Eventually, you're going to have to pay the consequences for what you've been doing over here. So you're enslaved to a drug lord over here. Gimme, gimme, gimme. I got to have it. And eventually, you're reaping up the judgment that you deserve because you're breaking a moral law over here. In the same way, we're living as Christians and we're enslaved to the basic elementary principles of the world. Got to have it, my appetites say, come on, come on, come on. And in the meantime, God's law is saying, you shall not, you shall not, you shall not. And you're heaping up a list of consequences 
a judgment from God. That's what's wrong with this. So, I need to be set free from my enslavement here to the world. And now I have a second problem. The law says you're guilty and you deserve judgment because of your enslavement to the world. I need to be set free. And God looks at the human race here and he says, okay, you're in a tough predicament. Let me help. So point number two. Jesus came. Jesus came. Because we were slaves, Jesus came. Now, there's four realities that are going on in verse 4 here. Let me read it for you. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. You can probably see the four realities right there as you go through verse 4. What are the four realities? First is that Jesus came according to God's timing. When the fullness of time had come. This was God's timetable that he was mapping out here. Remember, back in Genesis 3, God had promised a serpent crusher is coming. In Genesis 12, Abraham is told that your seed is going to come and be a blessing to the nations. In 2 Samuel 7, David is promised that a king is going to come and sit on a throne. You keep moving through the Old Testament and you read passages like Psalm 2 or Isaiah 7 or Isaiah 9 that is talking about a son who would come. In Micah 5, we're told that a ruler from Bethlehem is going to come. So all of these promises are being given throughout the Old Testament and they're pointing like big arrows to Jesus. And we're looking at this saying, okay, but when is he going to come? It would be nice if it happened right now. And the father is saying, the fullness of time has not come yet. Jews were asking, how long, O Lord, are we going to be in this bondage? When are you going to ascend the anointed one? On a global stage, you can look at the book of Daniel. And God is orchestrating the empires to accomplish his purposes. You remember it was Alexander the Great who conquered the world and introduced a common language to the world at that point so everybody could communicate. It was the Roman Empire then that eventually came and the Pax Romana was put into place so that people could travel peacefully from as far east or west as England all the way over to present-day Iran down to Africa. So we had a common language that God was putting into place. We had peaceful travel that was being put into place. And then God said, it's now. This is my plan. The fullness of time has come now. So there was the timing. Second, there was the aspect of God sending. God sending. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent This is all about God's plan, folks. God is not reacting to what is taking place. God is being proactive. He's accomplishing his plan from the very beginning to provide salvation for his glory to his people. And when he's sending, we're seeing something about the triune God. We're seeing God the Father plan salvation 
and send the pre-existing son. Jesus didn't just become a person like Islam would say when he was born into the world. He was sent. He was in existence already. And God is sending the son into the world, the glorious son, looking at the earth and saying, now the time has come. It's time for you to go and to redeem my people. Third reality, he came as a human. It says that he was born from a woman. So here is the glorious creator, the son of God, through whom and for whom all creation exists. And he chooses to be born of a woman, continues to be God, but confines himself to human flesh, chooses to be an embryo, a fetus, an infant in the womb, born like a little baby, grows up like a little boy, bumping his knees, stubbing his toes, climbing trees, being a teenager under his dad's leadership, learning the craft of carpentry, starting a ministry. He experienced all of humanity because he was fully human and born of a woman. Fourth reality here that we see is that he was born under the law. What does that mean? The law of Moses. We're not talking about Genesis to Deuteronomy. We're talking about the law of Moses given to the Jews at Sinai was in place as the authority, as the standard of obedience for God's people. Jesus was born under the law and had to keep those laws perfectly. And he did. He observed all of the laws and obeyed them. He observed all the holidays and feasts. He was perfectly righteous. And not only did he live under the law, but as you continue throughout his life, you see that he died under the law. There's a curse for breaking the law. What's the curse? The ultimate curse is death. And here is Jesus who died under the law as a curse. Galatians 3, the previous chapter, just simply says, God or Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, hanging on the tree. So from start to finish, here are just these realities. Here, the timing is right. God is going to be sending the glorious son. He's going to be a human. He's going to be born under the law. He's going to keep the law. Okay, so Jesus is coming. What did he accomplish for us? Verses 5 and 6 have two purpose clauses. These purpose clauses are built in progression with one another. And the ultimate purpose in verse 6, or the second purpose, is our point 3, to make us sons of God. Okay. So in verse 5, here's why Jesus came. In the Greek language, there's just this little, there's this little indicator. It's called a henna clause. And those who have worked with Greek would know henna means, oh, this is the purpose. And there's a henna clause that starts at the beginning of verse 5. He was sent. He was born of a woman. He was born under the law. First word in verse 5 is henna for this purpose. To redeem those who are under the law. And then second henna so that we might receive adoption as sons. So let's unpack this for just a moment. He redeemed us from the law. What's going on here? 
1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 and following says this. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just or those who have been justified, but for the lawless and the disobedient or the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane. All right, so the law, as you can see here, is not for those who are just. Christ has accomplished obedience and given his obedience to those who would receive him. So we have the obedience of Christ. The law is here showing people You've sinned. This is ungodly. This is sinful. You need righteousness applied to your account. The law is constantly saying, here's God's standard, and you fall short of it. So that's why the law is there, to show us that we're sinners. Now, thankfully, Romans chapter 7, verse 6 says this, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, thankfully, here is Christ. He's come to redeem us out from underneath the law. But the law keeps pointing out judgment upon us. Now, I think there is a really neat illustration of this. If you have read the book, I haven't seen the movie, so disclaimer there, and I'm in the middle of this book right now, Les Miserables. In this, you have this character, Jean Valjean, who is dirt poor at the beginning of his life. And in order to avoid starvation, he sees some baked goods in a bakery, smashes a window, grabs some bread, takes it home. Well, the only problem is that he broke a window and stole some bread. And now the French authorities are after him, and they catch him. And they put him in prison for being a thief. Well, as he's in prison, Valjean has this propensity to keep challenging the law and breaking the law. So three different times while he's in prison, he sees a window of opportunity to escape. And so he takes the opportunity and says, I got to get out of here. And he bolts the first time and breaks the law again. And as he's on the run, he gets captured by the authorities and brought back to prison. And he gets four more years added to his term. Well, he sees another chance several years later. He sees a window of opportunity. And he just has to have it. I just have to have it. So he runs again. French authorities catch up to him. You broke the law. Another six years added to his sentence. Third time, I just have to have it. I need freedom. This is what I want. Breaks the law, gets captured again. More prison time added on over and over again. This is what it's like, if I can say this illustratively speaking, where you're enslaved to your desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and pride of life. And at the same time, every time you act on those enslaving desires, the law is there saying you're guilty. More judgment, more judgment, more judgment, more judgment. So you're caught by two things here. It's kind of like a kid who walks in and just does something wrong. And 
They're like, but mom, dad, I couldn't help it. I just had to have that. And you say, well, you couldn't help it, but now you're going to get a little spanking or a consequence for your sin. That was wrong. They're like, but I just couldn't help it. They're given over to their cravings, and now the consequences come. We are all, as sinners, given over to our sin and deserving of God's judgment. So here is where Jesus came. Here is what he accomplished. According to verse 5, now that we're in prison, if you will, under the judgment of the law, here's what Jesus did. He came to redeem us. So what's redemption? Redemption is the price that's paid to free someone from their bondage. Unless the redemption price can be paid, you're stuck in your bondage. You're going to get whatever that authority, and in this case, it's the law now that has you in prison, if you will. It's the law of God saying you're deserving of eternal judgment. That's where you're stuck. And Paul is saying now, here's what we need. We need somebody who can come along and fix our situation under the law and under the judgment that we actually deserve. So what did Jesus accomplish for us? It says that he accomplished redemption. He paid the bondage price for us in his life. So Romans 3, verses 24 and 25 for all have sinned. That's all of us, all of humanity, the 8 billion people that are on the planet this morning. All have sinned and we have fallen short of the glory of God. And now we're under the judgment of God's law. But we are justified. We're made right by his grace as a gift. How did that happen? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Jesus comes and he pays the price so that we could be redeemed and have an opportunity to accept his gift of redemption. What does it mean that we have redemption that is in Jesus Christ? It simply means that those, all of us who are under the judgment of the law, can have no other means of redemption except through the price that Jesus pays. So you can hold your hand out and say, okay, I want my redemption this way, this way, this way, this way. Good works, maybe. Maybe a combination of good works and Jesus, all of that kind of stuff. Or I'm just going to try my own thing over here. And the Bible is very clear. There is only one singular way that you are going to find redemption. It's through the person of Jesus. Ephesians 1, 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of of sins. So if you're here as a non-Christian, you need to know this. Maybe you're tire kicking this morning and you're just wondering, what do I do with my sin? Like I feel guilty when I sin and God has given us that guilt as a good thing so that we know that we're not right. You need to know that God loves you. And God sent his son because you were in that place needing redemption. And you need to believe in Jesus. It's only through Jesus that you can receive redemption from your bondage to the judgment that you deserve. And for Christians now, what a blessing this is. 
Because we know that the Savior came and it's only through him who lived the perfect life under that law who could stand aside from the 8 billion people as the one individual and say, I'm the only one that did it. And we're saying, we need that life. And Jesus says, I'm offering my life as a gift to you. And we're saying, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your gift of salvation. But there's more. Remember the two henna clauses? That's the first henna. There's more to this. It's not like God is a judge who says, now I declare you to be innocent, on to the next case, move on out. Jesus came into the world, he pursued us for the purpose of redemption, but the purpose of redemption now serves the higher purpose. And what's this higher purpose? The higher purpose is that we can be now sons of God, that we can be in relationship with God as a father is to his sons. Now look what he says here in verse five. He came to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. So here is the last purpose, the high purpose. And this is good news for us, that God is interested in us not just being justified and being redeemed. He's interested in us being his children. He wants us to be his children. He went about this so that we could be his children. And I think that this needs to be refreshed for us in so many ways. Phil Riken, in his commentary on Galatians, referenced Charles Wesley. Many of you would hear the name Charles Wesley. He wrote a lot of hymns, and he started the Wesleyan or the Methodist movement. Wesley was at Oxford during his years of training, and while he was there, he was not saved, and yet he started what was called the Holy Club. In the Holy Club, these individuals, these guys, were trying to be right with God. And so they would get together for Bible study. They would get together for prayer and fasting. They would attend services. They went to prisons. They would feed the poor. All of these good things. And Wesley said, after he got saved later on, looking back, he said, at that time, when I was in Oxford doing all of those right things, listen to what he said. He said this, I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. I had even then the faith of a servant, though not that of a son. And his point was this. His point was he thought that his relationship with God was only about obedience just as a servant to the master, is only about obedience. And after he came to full knowledge, if you will, or saving knowledge, he enters into this new reality. He's, he's reading through the scripture and he's saying, wait a second, there's so much more to this redemption than being just a servant to a master. 
What I'm realizing is that God has saved me to enter into a relationship with him as a son, one who relates to a loving father. And that's how it can be so many times for even Christians, especially Christians who have had poor fatherly examples. The father only wanted obedience out of convenience for life. And so, obey me right now or else you'll get the judgment. Okay, I'm going to act like a little servant. That's what it is to be in relationship with my father. That totally misses who God is. Here's a God who sends his son into the world and his son now grabs other sons. And Romans 8 says that we stand next to Jesus as an heir, a fellow heir with Christ. So it's like he's putting his arms around us. And he's saying, they're like me now, Father. You think about it, what is the relationship that God the Son has with God the Father? It's a good relationship. It's personal. It's filled with love. And, and Jesus is saying, these are my brothers and sisters. You are my brothers and sisters. You're a fellow heir like I am, standing before the Father. And so now we have the relationship that the Son has with the Father. We are now the sons. and This is what Jesus was accomplishing for us. And this is a wonderful gift to know that we can go into this time of year anticipating the coming of Jesus and saying, it's not that we just have this relationship of obligatory obedience. We have this relationship with God. It's a gift of security that we have because the Father deeply loves us. Think about this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8 as God looked at Israel. The Lord, your God, who goes before you, will himself fight for you, just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have now seen how the Lord, your God, look at this, carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. You know, I think about that picture as a father who hoists his son up on his shoulders and puts him right behind his neck here and carries him through an amusement park or carries him down like a path. And he's holding on to his son here and he's just caring for him. He's, he's loving him. He's preserving him. He's helping him. And here's Moses saying, this is how God is towards you. He's carrying you through life. He loves you, Christian. A father is someone who protects his children. And so here he has sent the spirit of God into your life to seal you for that eternal salvation, which is someday coming. A father cares for the hearts of his children. He raises them in the instruction of the Lord so they know what is truth. And here's God who has given us his word and given us instruction so that we can know what the truth is. A good father is there for his children and present with his children. A good father wants his children to know he's there at any time for them. And here's God who sends the spirit into our hearts so that in those times of uncertainty or anxiety, we can cry out and say, God, I need you, I need you, I need you. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. That's our status. That's what God accomplished for us. At nights, um, I typically am the last one in with the boys. We have dude time, if you will, something like that in their room. And uh, last night, just keep this here. He's down the hall. Um, he was just struggling, our youngest. And so I was thinking about this passage. Here's the Father. Here's our Heavenly Father who has given us His Spirit, who is present with us, who wants us to know truth. And he was struggling and in bed, and I just went in there and laid down on his bed next to him, between him and the wall. And we just started chatting. And we talked for about 15 minutes. He had something on his heart that he wanted to talk about and was struggling with. And I could have gone in there and just been like, yo, son, cut it out. You're kind of cramping my Saturday night study time. Tomorrow morning, people are just going to be like, what in the world happened with that sermon? So, you know, just leave me alone. You know, you, you could have gone with that. But no, we just abide, we go through it, we talk, point him back to truth, try to bring him into security with God. We went to Proverbs 3, 5, we trust in the Lord with all of our heart, and we don't lean on our own understanding. Now, I have the privilege of being his father. And here, what we're seeing is that Jesus came to give us that relationship, to make it possible that we could be the sons of God. So God has pursued you. We were guilty slaves. We were given over to judgment, deserving of judgment, but God sent his son Jesus to redeem us from our guilt so that we could become his sons. Because you were slaves, Jesus came. And he came for what purpose? He came so that you and I could be sons of God. Let's pray.